Well, uh, I've met many of you, but my name is Bruce McPherson, and it's my great honor and privilege to be with you for the next few months while the search committee and the vestry discern who is to be the next rector of St. John's Church. Um, we'll have lots to say about that over time as we spend time together, but let me for now just say that um, uh, whoever is your next rector, it will not be Luis. It will be someone else. And the someone else will bring different gifts than Luis has brought all these uh, many years. Uh, we all acknowledge that change is inevitable. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a given in our life that change always happens. Sometimes we welcome it uh, as in a new job or a new, a new relationship or a new child in the family. Uh, sometimes uh, it, uh, it, it happens unexpectedly and we don't... Uh, we don't want it to happen, but in either, in either case, it's not the change that's the issue. The issue is adapting to a new status quo. Um, never is it, is it easy. The old status quo is much more comfortable, much more elegant in a way, familiar, easy. And so when your next rector, you won't do this to me because I won't be here long enough for you to get away with it. But when your next rector shows up, you will have to adapt to a new status quo. He or she will have a different way of doing things. And sometimes that can be more challenging than it may seem on the surface. Well, um, no more to say about that now. We'll have time to talk about it uh, from time to time in uh, perhaps from the pulpit also in uh, some adult forums. Today, however, we're anticipating Independence Day. And in this location, in this place, at this time, it seems the perfect time to talk about the relationship between faith and politics. Everybody always goes silent if I say that. <laughs> My mother, um, used to say there were two things you never discuss in polite company, right? Faith and politics. Uh, sorry, Mom. <laughs> Fools rush in. Anyway, my, um, my uh, text for today comes from Matthew's Gospel, um, which Andy just read. Uh, the sun, uh, for God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Uh, the first thing we need to get behind us is this. Uh, I have heard it argued, and perhaps you have too, that Jesus was somehow above it all, above the fray, um, that Jesus was apolitical. The Jesus that uh, I was uh, introduced to as a child was uh, tall, thin, blonde, blue-eyed. He wasn't that either, of course. You couldn't wander around the Roman Empire in Jesus' day proclaiming the coming of a kingdom other than that of Rome and think of yourself as apolitical. Jesus was constantly at odds with the establishment, with the, with the, with the Roman authorities, and as you know, they killed him for it. And a lot of other Christians in the first few centuries of Christianity. So to say that somehow Jesus and Christianity general, generally needs to be above the fray, it seems to me, is badly mistaken. Uh, 
The other thing to say is we, we have a very difficult time understanding the world in which Jesus grew up, obviously. I mean, it, that goes without, uh, without saying, I suppose. So the world in which we live is uh, so completely differently that it's hard to cast ourselves backward. And when we try to imagine Jesus, we can't imagine the, the uh, environment in which he grew up and, and, and to which he was opposed. Uh, here's, a, here's, I think, the most striking example. In every Greco-Roman house in the first century, there was an altar. And the altar was to the ancestors. And so what mattered in every Greco-Roman house was the grace, the gift, that the ancestors gave to each descendant. On the altar was a fire, and the head of the, head of the house, the pater familias, was responsible for keeping that fire burning all the time. And that was more than, and that, and that has obvious symbolic value, doesn't it? His job, and it was always him, of course, his job was to see to it that the family continued. And one's identity was entirely uh, tied up in the family identity. And the paterfamilias, the head of the house, told everyone in the house what to do and how to do it. So the family you grew up in mattered more than anything else. If you happened to grow up in a family of shepherds, you were gonna watch sheep, period. If you happened to grow up in a family of chariot makers, you were going to uh, make chariots. And maybe a sister would marry somebody who raised horses so you could vert vertically integrate, I don't know. And if you were fortunate enough to grow up in the family of an emperor, you had a pretty good chance of becoming an emperor. But I'll tell you, even, even if you were overthrown by force of arms, you were gonna be overthrown by somebody else from another royal household. So your place in society, one's place in society, one's status, had, was entirely about family. Jesus had plenty to say about that, didn't he? Unless you hate father and mother for my sake, you can't follow me. Someone came to him and said, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Take up your cross and follow me. Maybe the most important thing Jesus ever said, as it's recorded in the Gospels, was, was um, um, in, in, the, in, in, uh, in Mark, Jesus' mother and brothers were outside the house where he was teaching, and the disciples came to him and said, your mother and your brothers want to talk to you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my sisters and my brothers? Those who do the will of God. Jesus redefined family as those who do the will of God. That one little pericope, that one little piece of scripture is probably a lot more important than John 3.16, which we all 
think of uh, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus redefined what it meant to be a human being. A human being is part of the human family, God's family, because everyone is made in the image and likeness of God and therefore part of that family. We take that for granted today, don't we? That everyone's created equal. Everyone's endowed by, by their uh, creator to gifts of life and liberty. We take it all for granted. But in Jesus' day, it was anything but. There's a wonderful book uh, uh, by a uh, uh, church historian slash political philosopher slash theologian at Oxford named uh, Larry Seedentop. The book is called Inventing the Individual. And it traces the history of what he calls the Christian moral revolution through really through the millennia as it evolves over time. And it all begins with this really critical distinction made by Jesus about human equality, human dignity, the importance that we respect one another, everyone, without exception. Jesus did this in his lifetime, and in fact, it got him in Dutch with the authorities the religious authorities. Jesus was forever breaking the law, the Torah. He was forever, forever running afoul, you know this, running afoul of the temple authorities who would accuse him of all sorts of things. And in fact, here's your, here's your homework. Aha, you didn't know this, you're gonna get homework. Tonight or sometime this week when you've got nothing better to do, read the book of Leviticus. No, don't read the whole book. Read, uh, start at the 19th chapter of the book of Leviticus, which is called the Holiness Code. And it gives you a long list of things to do to be holy. Jesus was not particularly interested in those things if in some way they impacted his relationship with an individual in need. For example, and there are lots of them in the Gospels, for example, he was forever being accused, as you know, of violating the Sabbath rules. He was healing on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? He was healing. He was working on the Sabbath by helping people. We should all do that, shouldn't we? Work on the Sabbath by helping people. He was once asked by a lawyer. Uh, in that context, lawyer means uh, defender or interpreter of the Torah, the law. He was once asked by a lawyer to define a neighbor. And he told the story that you all know about a man who went up from Jericho to Jerusalem, was, was, uh, 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 was uh, 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 taken by thieves and, and uh, robbed and left, in the, uh, left beside the road in a ditch for dead. And two priests came by, Andy and I came by, and paid no attention, walked to the other side of the street and kept on going. And we did that because Leviticus 21.1 says that the priests can't touch human blood. So we were obedient to the law. But the person who cared for the man in distress, of course, wasn't one of us. 
He was a no-goodnik. He was from someplace else. He was, a, he was a Samaritan, and Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. They're a, they're, a, they're a mongrel race. We don't talk to them. We certainly don't touch them. But it's the Samaritan, the despised yet nevertheless good Samaritan, who takes care, binds, binds the wounds of the wounded man and, and takes him to, uh, to the local hotel and pays for his room and board until he can move on. So Jesus was perfectly happy, and, and, his, and Jesus goes on to say, so which one was the neighbor to the man in trouble? And the answer at that point is pretty clear. And, Je and Jesus was perfectly happy to um, uh, tell a story that violated the letter of the, of the law, the letter of the Torah. Why? Because it was about an individual, and in that case, an individual in trouble. Jesus defended Syrians, Syrophoenician, um, Canaanite woman, uh, 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 any number of Samaritans, a, a prostitute. Well, a prostitute supposed to be stoned, as you know. Jesus said no. He defended even, imagine this, even the, the, the healed the slave of a Roman centurion, the enemy, all in pursuit of this idea of a moral revolution having to do with the worth of every individual. Well, let's fast forward to the Enlightenment. There's a lot in between. The church is not always uh, well represented over the centuries. There's plenty of avarice, plenty of gluttony, plenty of power brokering that goes on in the church. Although I would say, um, as does my friend Seedentop, I would say that uh, every time the church went way off the rails, there was always a reformer calling it back to this fundamental principle of the essential value of every human being. Think uh, St. Francis of Assisi or, or Martin Luther or uh, Martin Luther King for that matter. Always calling us back to this central idea. Well, the, I was taught in high school and in college that it was the enlightenment that gave our founding, uh, our founders their inspiration. And I never questioned it beyond that, but one might ask, so what gave the philosophers, the thinkers of the Enlightenment, their inspiration? I, I, think the, I think the most interesting of them all, and there's a lot, there's a huge amount there, as you know, would be John Locke, because Locke was read by our founders avidly. Uh, John Locke was an Englishman in the uh, 17th century who, um, uh, 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 argued persuasively against the divine right of kings, uh, resulting in what is called the Glorious Revolution in 1688. I used to teach history, sorry. Resulting in the uh, Glorious Revolution of 1688. And, and that argument against the divine right of kings was based on, in his own words, the, I have it here somewhere, In his uh, second treatise on government, Locke wrote that everyone has a natural right to defend life, liberty, health, and possessions. 
Sounds familiar, right? And that natural right is derived from the, from the understanding that everyone is a child of God and therefore everyone is worthy of respect. The founders are often accused of, of a slightly variant, if you will, a slightly different um, uh, form of Christianity. Um, really comes from the French philosophers, um, usually called deism. No point in going into uh, a lot of detail about that, except to say that um, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a way of understanding God as distant from us, because we are, we are given by God reason, and we can use reason to accomplish everything. And, and I think that's accurate. Those uh, men were uh, creatures of their time, and they read all that, uh, and they uh, believed all that. They also believed that the way to worship God was, it, was by the way you lead your life, by living into the life that Jesus pre uh, preaches. But that misses the larger point, I think, which is that it's the, 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 the core values, the essential values of our Western liberal democracy are the same core values that Jesus taught in this, what Sedentop calls this Christian moral revolution. And so we have these things in common. We have, we Christians, have in common the same basic ideals, the same basic uh, love of and trust in the worth of every single individual. The sense of equality, equal justice, equal treatment, freedom, freedom from the tyranny of inherited position. And it's the same, precisely the same message that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago in the Lower Galilee and in Jerusalem. There's just so much more to say about all that. Um, Locke learned from Thomas Hobbes, and Hobbes uh, was the author of the idea that uh, the government only governs by consent of the governed, um, which is, sort of, of course, fundamental to our Constitution. Um, our Bill of Rights in, in, uh, codifies, if you will, the notion of individual, the value of each individual, and therefore the rights which each individual possess. So we are very much in sync, and we must not forget that. We, Christians, and the federal government. Jesus was also, Jesus and Paul especially, was also uh, very opposed to the whole idea of, of enforced belief. You had to believe it. You couldn't not be quiet on the Sabbath. You had to believe it. For us, it's, it's what makes, it what, it's why I love the Episcopal Church so much. It's, you know, uh, the opposite of faith isn't doubt. We, we embrace doubt. We embrace doubt because, because we're individuals. And we, and we each have a, a, a sort of moral imperative to work our way through 
And, and some of us, many of us, choose to work our way through life and understand the difference between right and wrong in companionship with others. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Faith isn't, faith isn't something that we're told to memorize. It's not, it's not something we lapse into when reason fails. It's a way of life. It's a way of life first preached by the rabbi from Nazareth who started a Christian moral revolution. Well, there's so much more to say. I will, um, I'll do a blog post, how about that? A little more detail, some books, like my friend Seedentop's book, uh, maybe some others. So you can do your own reading because everybody's, um, uh, everybody's got the, a right to work this through for themselves. And, um, uh, but it's just a, such a huge topic that it's impossible to cover uh, here and now. There is one more thing. You don't know Wendy Winters. Wendy's a journalist uh, who, incidentally, I suppose, wrote a wonderful uh, lengthy piece about an Episcopal church in central Maryland that was established in the, sec in the First World War as a place of refuge for soldiers coming and going uh, to war and for their families. Uh, she called it a place of comfort. Wendy was murdered on Thursday. She was murdered by someone, I guess, who thought the press had a little too much freedom. She was just one of the uh, seven, over 7,000 Americans who have died of gunshot wounds so far this year. But it does say something to me about where we are as a people, inheritors of the Christian moral revolution. The level, you all know this, the level of public discourse has gotten so low on all sides, has gotten so low that it seems to me that perhaps some have feel as though they've been given permission to act in dangerous ways. As we celebrate Independence Day, we need to remember the core values on which we stand have to do with the dignity of every human person. We say that at baptisms, don't we? We're going to respect the dignity of everyone. And we respect that dignity in two important and equally valuable ways. One, the individual freedoms that we've been given, and two, the responsibility to see that there's justice 
that I can, that everyone is treated fairly because I can see myself in you and you can see yourself in me, whoever you and me turn out to be. If we remember the freedom, the liberty part, and forget the justice part, we are in danger of losing our national souls. So this Independence Day, remember, if you can, that we are inheritors of the moral revolution of the one who said, blessed are the poor and the humble, the meek. Blessed are the, those who prefer mercy to retribution, or worse, disdain. Those who work tirelessly for peace, peace in our homes, peace in our cities, peace around the world. And blessed especially are those who can't sleep at night as long as there is injustice in the world. They're hungry for a righteous world. That's who we are. That's our heritage as a people and as a nation. They fit together. And it's based on the fundamental understanding that God makes the sun rise on everybody, the evil and the good, and God's rain waters every garden. Amen.